0: Good day and welcome to Carnage House Productions number seven. Uh, today we've got author, artist, uh, wool connoisseur, entrepreneur, uh, but most impressively, uh, my uncle, uh, Charles Olson. How are you? Very good, thank you, Alex.
1: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: No, <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. The um, couple of things we might touch on today, but obviously we'll see how it goes. Yes. Um, One thing I guess you're quite passionate about is the farmers, uh, particularly uh, drought. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you give us some kind of indication of, is the the current drought that the farmer's going through, anything, is this a particularly bad drought, is this kind of historically Mm -hmm. consistent, um, or is this just off
1: the charts? Okay, I think think Australia has sporadically been in drought for over 10,000 years. Um, it varies in length and duration, and it varies how f- how far it is across the nation. There have been plenty of bad droughts in the past. This is just a particularly bad one. Um, always when droughts happen, you have some sort of apocalypse going on where people think, oh, my God, this is the end of the world. It's a big drought. But really, when you look back over thousands of years and if you talk to geologists, we've had massive periods of dry weather, and this is just one of them. The problem is that we're opening up so much farmland that uh, the drought is affecting more and more farmers because we actually have a lot more farmers a lot more right. animals. So in particular, um, we haven't really planned our water policy. That's actually what we're actually finding out. That governments, excessive governments, have not actually allowed for water policy. They haven't brought down water from the north which has always been optioned for 50 years under the Bradfield scheme which is uh, capturing all the water in north Queensland and opening channels up and bringing it right down through the middle of Australia right down to Victoria. It might cost $100 billion but so what, would actually open up Australia. Yeah. So lack of infrastructure and lack of planning is what we're seeing. And also a lack of government uh, planning for drought. There's been no planning at all.
0: Right. So uh, if it was up to, is, is that a question of um, purely getting licences and government approvals for that type of scheme? Or is it like, would there be an incentive for the private sector to do that? Or would that pro- primarily be a government job?
1: Uh, I think it's got to be a total government job. They can, for instance, we talked about with farmer groups um, increasing GST to 5%, extra 5% over 20 years. Legislate that and it stops. And that 5% would go to massive infrastructure programs to bring down water from the north. Yeah, um, When you come to mountain ranges and what have you, there's solar, good solar uh, energy that we can pump water all year round. Uh, but it's just a, like a lack of planning. It seems to be the current crop of government officials all are of thinking about three-year terms rather than 20 or 30-year terms. Sure. And that's a problem right across the world. But some governments uh, around the world have, have shown that they, they do want to plan. It's mostly in developing nations that are really uh, showing us how it should be done. But really, until we have the, uh, a, a solid government in place that actually thinks about farmers primarily rather than as a reactive way, we're always, always going to have this trouble and we're always going to have people in drought
0: yeah so um as you mentioned before um this pattern of i guess warming and cooling has been exactly that a pattern for several thousand years even going i guess since the earth began almost um do you think this is uh, i mean obviously some people will chalk this kind of drought period up to climate change um is there any basis for linking the two
1: all right well look uh, it seems to me, since people stopped going to church, there's still this, there's still this desire to think about something which is, which is bigger than just us surviving. So climate change has become, or certainly man-made climate change has become um, a new type of church and religion for a lot of people. People like to be apocalyptic, but it's probably deeper than that. Um, big oil is not really um, in favor of the US Democrats. So it was very convenient for Al Gore and co to actually pick big oil up and make that an example. And the best thing was to come up with spurious figures about how the last 150 years have seen a large spike in temperature sure. owing to a very very minute of extra CO2 in the atmosphere. And most people have bought it because most people haven't got the chance to sit down and think about it. They trusted those people. Sure. Um, for me it, it's a great hoax um, but I certainly think we should look at things we can do to mitigate um, use of fossil fuels, just because it's a good thing to do. Sure. Why, sh- why should we keep relying on the Middle East for, for energy? Why don't we start developing it here? Yeah. So in some ways, we, I think there's plenty of middle ground for all of us. You yeah. can always say, okay, well, I don't accept that it's a man-made climate change, but listen, let's try and do some things that are really cool. Yeah. Uh, for instance, one of our companies is working on reducing methane in cattle. Sure. Making them more productive, so...
0: That has been uh, mentioned quite a few times recently. Yeah. Is, um, particularly by the grains. Yeah. Is the amount of methane produced by cattle.
1: Yeah, and look, it's a, it's a convenient thing to say that we don't want to get rid of beef farming, but the way to do it is say they're... Get rid of cattle. Get rid of cattle. And it's yeah, like, sure. you, you idiots, like there's been <laughs> uh, ruminants walking the planet for millions of years emitting mm. methane, and the Earth's learned to deal with that sure. on a 12-year anthropogenic cycle. Uh, but again, it fundamentally supports this lunatic idea that all our activities are, are, are leading to the end of the world. And it's just, it's just apocalypse. I think, I think it's genetic, I don't think people actually use their brains to look at the science. Sure. I mean, Albert Einstein posited E equals MC squared in about 1920, okay? And he, he he said, really, basically, there's nothing faster than the speed of light in that equation. Now, for the last 60, 70 years, uh, most world scientists looked at that and said, well, is that true? Is there anything faster than the speed of light for that theory to become exact? And that's what it was. It was a theory until, I think, it was about the 70s or 80s where it was proven that light was the fastest known... Uh, object in the universe, mm. so his theory has proven to be correct. So it's now a fact. This is uh, this theory of man-made climate change has been lack of scepticism right from the start sure. because monetary forces have paid scientists to prove that there is man-made climate change. There's been a massive bribe. And there is
0: so- obviously that incentive that, that they have that incentive issue where. The scientists who go along with the government policies, which is a reflection of what I guess uh, a bunch of people and activists think, yeah. Um, if they contribute or or kind of solidify the findings to support this kind of, um, it's almost like a, a self anti-human, like self-loathing, um, ideology. Um, well, they're they're going to be the scientists that get the grants and get the the funding.
1: Yeah, you've got to drink the green cordial. Yeah, you've got to come on board with. Uh... The philosophy, I mean, it has happened again and again and again in history, you know, the the rise of the Catholic Church and persecuting Protestants and burning people uh, over, you know, the 14, the Inquisition was the same thing. You accept Mm. our philosophy we burn you. Sure. And you see today, it's almost there that you talk to someone who's a a climate change fanatic and immediately you object, they attack you personally, straight away. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing that you just, there seems to be this genetic rollover again and again and again. Yeah. Just because you don't agree with them, they get very violent. Sure. So um, that in itself weakens their theory. Mm. But the biggest thing that I've seen is they just will refuse to recognise history. You go back for all recorded history, until the Hun, for instance, and the Mongols, they were able to take their horses across the steppes of Asia because of massive rainfall and climate change. Mm. Um, Genghis Khan was able to actually benefit from Many, many years of great warmth and, and rainfall, which allowed his horse, horse uh, tribes to move right across Asia and unite the Mongols. Yeah. Now, they forget that. Sure. The Sahara 5,000 years ago was a, was a rainforest. Yeah. You know, there was no, not many, many factories around 5,000 years ago. There weren't many, you know, two-stroke motors running around.
0: Well, we don't. you know, they're, they're not exactly sure who built the pyramids. Could have been the aliens. Could have been the aliens. Could have been the aliens. So they might have been teetering around with tractors and whatnot.
1: Well, I just uh, I recently travelled to, to Malta uh, on a family holiday, and um, they've just unearthed uh, very very good stone construction constructions, which were sold the first solar clocks that are probably about fifty meters by fifty meters, with perfectly constructed large stone walls mm. that are dated back to five 000, six thousand BC. Mm. Now they were measuring the winter and summer solstice so they could plant their crops yeah. by this by these amazing stone clocks. Same with the Stonehenge. Uh, you know, mankind is very old. He's been been involved in measuring and, and mathematics for a very long time. Same with the pyramids. Like, mm. it's not inconceivable but they're exactly the same as us. They just didn't have electricity or antibiotics. Sure. They had everything else, though. Yeah. So I don't think modern people should think they're any better than the ancients. In fact, the ancients were actually probably more superior to us.
0: I agree. There is kind of this um, Whig version of history where people adopt this kind of thing where they say um we are necessarily smarter or we are necessarily better in all aspects by virtue of the fact that we're further along right Um, and they also say that we we don't really lose any knowledge we only build on on top of knowledge but what you find out is um the theory doesn't really hold because you couldn't say that the world in 1943 was better than it was in 1937 Mm -hmm. and in the midst of the second world war you couldn't say the same thing for the first world war you can say that for the dark ages or the plagues or, or whatever um, but there is kind of this, uh, in my opinion, there is kind of this thing where people say, "Well, we're necessarily better, and we don't don't have to heed the advice or, or the knowledge of previous generations, even further back, you know, that yeah. uh, several centuries ago." Um, look, l- I am l- well, that's because.
1: Sorry, to interrupt. That's because people do not study history; mm. they just study convenient, disputable facts because it suits their philosophy. Sure. You know, there are a lot of angry people in the first world countries, a lot of angry people that can't achieve high wealth, can't achieve success, so they focus on turning their anger towards other things. Mm. I mean, the whole idea of climate change philosophy is actually redistribution of capital. They want to take money off the oil companies and wealthy people and redistribute it themselves. Yeah. The way they do it is by carbon taxes or by taxing oil or sure. making it difficult for manufacturing. They are, in effect, a lot of them are just socialists, pure socialists. They don't understand that you shut these things down. You shut down society. And you look at the way Russia operated in the forties and fifties and sixties, you know, those all the intellectuals who were involved in that debate are still out there, have never been hold over the coals for supporting communism. But it's mm. fundamentally fundamentally the same people today who are supporting climate change, main climate change. Sure. You you mankind has gone back, uh, you can go back to the to the Greeks and go further past then to the Phoenicians and go back way past then of, of advanced society that was had good law and had good medicine and had a very good society that rose and fell. Sure. You know, and then people forgot what they did. Mm. The Romans gave us everything. We're still inheriting today. Mm. Parts of the world still haven't got good sanitation or open water.
0: Yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah. And, and they, even the Greeks. Go, go to the Greeks as well. Um, their contribution to democracy. But even... Um, you, you're you exactly right. Like You go all the way back, and you can say we're still picking up pieces and using pieces. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, advanced societies have come well before us uh, and and flourished and changed the whole world. We yeah. still have the Roman language, we still have Roman law, we still have the basis of all their writings. The Holy See in, um, in, in Rome still speaks Latin. Mm. Uh, half your, all, all your scientific things you learn at school in biology are all lame, named uh, with, with, with Latin names, so sure. still with us. But have we learned anything? Do we actually go back and learn what the people have taught us in the past or do we have to reinvent it again? There's almost like this self-destruction at the moment in society with people who just will not learn from the past and just want to tr- tread a new philosophy at the cost of anything.
0: Mm. But it is—it's almost like a willing self-destruction as well. John, when John Ruddick was on the uh, on the podcast, he was talking about kind of the differences between the left and the right—the fundamental differences—and yeah. he says the right, one of the fundamental things is that they believe in incremental change, so um, slowly progressing, whilst the left kind of believes in this kind of almost anarchy-based, total upheaval, ripping apart everything um, because obviously they have adopted the the position that, well, some of them at least, at least on the far left, have adopted the position that they know best, that um, they are kind of the epitome of the, you know, several hundred thousand years of evolution and that their their wisdom kind of supersedes all the previous, Mm -hmm. everything previous. do you think as well kind of this issue of climate change is a luxury that is kind of afforded to, if you're worrying about climate change, you're obviously, you don't have much to worry
1: about. If you're worrying about climate change? Yeah. Um, well, I'm not worried about climate change. Mm. I, I just think climate, climate changes. Sure. So I'm, I'm fully on board. Yes, yeah. it changes. It changes all the time. And we don't really know why it changes. The earth is so complex. There's so many other theories. There's so many scientists mm-hmm. who disagree with man-made climate change. But I'm one of those people, I'm willing to see more information. Sure. But what I don't want is to be abused while I'm looking at the information. Mm. And the intellectual elites on the left, or the far left, are the ones that started communism and and wanted to take wealth. And they're just another power broker. Mm. They're using fear. They're very much like the Catholic Church in the early days, and early churches. They use fear and superstition to control money and control the masses. It's just a political system. Mm. This is just a very, very raw attempt at controlling masses with fear. Like the end of the world. Like what's happened in... 30 years ago, Al Gore said that all the foreshores in America would be swept away.
0: Mm.
1: Well, I'm sorry. Everyone's still there. Yeah, everyone's still there. The polar bears are still hunting. They're still happy. In fact, with broken ice, polar bears are able to hunt better. So I don't see anyone actually suffering at the moment. No. Except, uh, obviously, all the intellectuals' bank accounts. Their bank accounts are not as much as they thought they'd be. Sure. Uh, so, really, it's... From my point of view, is the intellectual elite is very much like George Orwell talked about in Animal mm. Farm. These people who think they're much cleverer than everyone else, who think they can dictate policy. I mean, how many intellectual people got so upset that Donald Trump got elected? Mm. They were outraged. Friends of mine here in universities, who are very good mates of mine, were outraged. And their suggestion was, well, obviously populations need to be re-educated so they don't yeah. vote in Donald Trump. And my reply to that was, well, so that's what Pol Pot did. Yeah. he re-educated everybody and killed everybody yeah in fact he killed everyone with glasses just in case they were intelligent Mm. so this it just recurs again and again so uh yeah i don't i just don't like the movement itself if no i'm interested in the debate sure
0: i mean there is kind of this uh almost pascal's wager type of thing dougal gets at me when i talk to him um because i don't play the devil's advocate enough because most of the people um, i have on i've agreed with for the most part anyway so there is I, I I feel like there is kind of though the kind of the, um, almost, let's just say even if we don't think it's right for the sake of the argument, because the proposed destruction is so severe, mm-hmm. uh, in the case where the skeptics are wrong, mm. that it's almost kind of the safe option to adopt these policies yeah. anyway. What would you say to someone who says the worst possible outcome is so bad that you should treat it anyway?
1: Okay, firstly, they should have a cup of tea and lie down, <laughs> have a good rest, <laughs> then wake up and they to talk to me rationally about what's happened, what's the evidence was happened. Let's go evidence-based so far and yeah. look at the evidence, which is pretty clear. There's not that much increase in CO2. Mm. Number two, I take strong objection to CO2 being called a pollutant. That is just completely crazy. Sure. But I'm happy to talk about pollution from cars and mm. factories and that sort of stuff and control all that, so I find the middle ground. Um, for instance, I was in London recently, and uh, the new cabs have electric and petrol motors. And as soon as the cabs hit the cities, it goes full electric. So it keeps the pollution down, keeps down the carbon monoxide and all those mm. terrible things that cars emit. That's the sort of ground we should be talking about, cutting pollution. Um, you're certainly not going to stop India and China from growing and cutting their power. Yeah. This is what the intellectual elite don't understand. This is a battle about trade. China and India want us to shut our manufacturing down because mm. they're putting up they're putting up coal furnaces quicker than you can throw a ball at them. Mm. So w- Queensland, for instance, half its revenue comes from coal exports. Yeah. You think they're going to shut down coal exports? I don't think so. Mm. But so the idea is to find middle ground in these debates, and if you find someone who's a who's a climate change advocate, that find the middle ground, but it's very hard to find them. Very hard and that's that's why I've been trying to talk to people and say, Well let's let's start on something simple like stopping methane in cattle. We can do that by feeding them better because my interests are yeah, in stock feed. Sure. There. You know, declaring interest. I feed cattle to make them more productive. Yeah. And uh, if I can develop methane products for cattle, it's gonna help me enormously, but also help help uh, the economy and the world. Mm. So there are good debates we can have, e.g. Sure. farmers planting new crops that are genetically modified to be deeper rooted and sink carbon, which actually drought proof properties. So these are good debates we can have and find some middle ground. But otherwise, to say shut down manufacturing, shut down energy. Sure. And I know companies in South Australia that have put in massive diesel generators to keep their factories going because the Labor government's last crazy policies. So really, I think it's just a debate of being sensible. And what, what you're actually finding about, it's actually about you're arguing about redistribution of capital. Yeah. Tens of thousands of scientists are now on the gravy train getting massive money from, from uh, left-leaning socialist groups to prove this, this crazy science. Sure. That's really what it's all about. Now, if you stop it tomorrow, you watch. This, you watch. You stop funding these scientists tomorrow. You watch the movement die overnight. It'll just be dead overnight. Yeah. Just, they'll go move on to something else. Like scientists, will just go back and say, "Well, we'll just go back to the pub again," or find <laughs> something else to do.
0: Yeah, I yeah. Look, it is um, it, it, it is a fundamental uh, incentive problem um that you have when taxpayers funding scientists who want who need funding obviously yeah um, and they're going to want to align themselves with kind of the government or whatever's policies hip and trendy rather than actual scientific results yep
1: um but saying that to answer your question again you said why shouldn't we agree with the skeptics we say to the skeptics what's the alternative for power and they say solar and wind you say well that will will provide maybe five percent at best for our nation's needs so what you're saying is we should shut down all manufacturing, and yeah. the answer is well, solar's good enough. And I'm saying, well, if you try to run a factory on solar, because I have, I try to put in batteries and solar things, and we'll just start the machines in the morning by ten o'clock, it's all gone. Mm. So I'm, there's fifty people out of a job. Yeah. So they just don't think it through practically what that actually means because they've been they've been polluted with this silly science. But um, okay, let's go nuclear. Yeah. Let's put nuclear in the middle of the desert so it's all safe. Why out there that no one's there and we'll put some big reactors out there? Because oh. there's no shortage of uranium out there.
0: Well, I mean, if we, it's, we're, we're taking everyone else's waste anyway.
1: So, right. So, let's just We're taking
0: it. everyone's waste anyway. The uranium's already in the ground.
1: And we could have free energy. Every house could have free energy. But then again, all the companies don't like that either. Yeah. So, there's all these vested interests, Alex, in this, in this world. Nothing, no one does anything for free. No. Every person who has an agenda... There's a re- usually financial motive behind it. That's what, at my age of 55, mm. you start looking, why is a person saying that? Like, what's your interest? Like, how many mates I have who believe in climate change, man I climate change? They're still driving a poxy old Ford or an old Commodore, yeah. six-cylinder Commodore, spewing out heaps of carbon gas. Like, where's your skateboard, mate? Yeah. Where's your Prius? You know, where's your Segway? But
0: even the Priuses, even those, um, to manufacture the batteries for those things, um, it's uh, enormously costly for the environment. It is. To, um, with all the, the chemicals like the alkaline and the lithium, all that stuff, to actually um, concentrate it and to refine it to a point where you can actually use it in batteries, unbelievably damaging to the environment.
1: Well, they don't see that, you see. Mm. They, they go straight to the CO2 as being the bad one. Yeah. But the thing about this debate should be enlarged too. What about people getting sick in the cities because of the pollution of cars? Sure that's sure. what we should be talking about getting rid of cars in the cities and replacing electric cars replacing it with segways I mean why can't we ride segways from North Hornsby into the city it costs 7 cents a week to charge it mm. you know, they, I'm a fan of segways yeah let's do segways let's do electric skateboards I mean, every bloke be, you probably need an umbrella once in a while electric no. bikes electric bikes yeah what, let's do that and if the government's so concerned, make a start on something that's practical and easy. We can all get our heads around. Like sure. No more petrol cars in the cities. Yeah. Let's do that and replace it with. You might get a massive free. You might get free registration, or a massive deduction off the cost of your car if you get an electric hybrid.
0: I feel like though um, people, if they really want to, like uh, for instance, I'm a uh, a big fan of cutting taxes. Um, I feel like if you know, if the people want electric cars, which I think for the for the most Part people do. People adopt the thing. Well, I I don't necessarily. Even if they don't necessarily believe in climate change, they think, well, you know, I'm doing something for it. Um, Sure. So, I feel like you know, if you cut taxes, people will buy more electric cars, more electric scooters, whatever. Um, But look, I'm I'm definitely on board with nuclear. I feel like if we've got all this uranium in the middle of the in the middle of Australia, we've got a situation where we've got. Some of the highest power prices in the world. Yeah. Um despite the fact we also export enormous amounts of coal. Yep. Um like in my estimation, it's just pretty abundantly clear that the solar that the we just don't have the ability to store solar power um to the extent which is actually economically viable. Right. And it doesn't even matter how many panels you put up if you can't store the energy, then it doesn't really make a difference. Exactly. And it's unbelievably costly. Um I feel like I remember we spoke about the high-speed rail, Mm -hmm. uh, potentially Sydney, Canberra, Uh Melbourne or something like that. Now, if I remember correctly, you've been advocating for this for ages, haven't you? Sure. Or something like that. Yeah, sure. Um, Would you you like to still see that go ahead? More than ever. More than ever.
1: Uh, A variety of reasons. Um, I've talked to friends in government and very reasonable people on all sides of the house saying it's not economically viable. My viewpoint is: Well, you have you haven't done your sum problem because you're not actually including social mathematics here. That is, we're having to build all these hospitals in country areas to take care of people. Mm. High-speed train means you're in the city in one hour from the middle of New South Wales, wherever you are, um, and can get world-class care with the high-speed rail. Um, you're talking about reducing road deaths. You're talking about um,
0: Lowering house prices as Number well. Number one,
1: decentralisation of housing. You can live in, on a five-acre estate somewhere down to Kudamundra. Yeah. Young, have a wonderful life of being in the city in an hour and a half every day. Mm. Like the Swedes do. In Sweden, they travel two hours of work on these high-speed trains. And they actually open up the office in there on their laptop and do work on the way in. Mm. Every They've day. They've got other
0: problems, though, Swedes.
1: they a lot of problems. They're doing... ABBA's gone. ABBA's gone. They're not coming back, ABBA. <laughs> if you saw, if you saw, uh, what was the show, and Mia Part 2... That's a real problem. <laughs> I, I, I felt ill. watching Really? It. Yeah, watching Mamma me one with the family—that was pretty good. The number two is like Are you joking? <laughs> You've all been hit in the head with something sharp. Yeah. Yeah, terrible. That's a real problem. For that's me. a real problem. Yep.
0: Purge, Mamma Mia, get it off.
1: Get it off! Don't watch it, folks. It's appalling number two. I wouldn't wouldn't watch it. What else? What else has come out of Sweden that's any good? Volvo. Ferris, Volvo.
0: You had a Volvo for a while. Well,
1: one and three break down is that true yeah yeah they do like you get a good one it's great but you get a bad one it's like oh my god just it's
0: a bit of potluck
1: you just gotta buy a tow truck with it
0: true yeah, yeah. it's like a um a kebab at two thirty in the morning what happens two out of that? three are good two out of three are one good. Or three are suspicious
1: one's gonna sound like a bunch of sparrows leaving the nest in the morning
0: yeah yeah that's Terrible. it um now You've got some more artistic endeavours that you're going on uh-huh. at the minute. Um, what we'll do is we'll put a, uh, a link in the podcast so that oh, they can you. have a look at the stuff. Um, so all 11 people, and about six of them are related to me directly who listen to this podcast. will be able to have a look at them.
1: That's well, 11 more than I've got now, <laughs> us about 16, I think.
0: 16. 16. Well, we're on the way up. About
1: we're a 33% the... inc- or 40% increase.
0: Well, there we go. There we go. Um, have you always been passionate about painting?
1: Uh, mum, My mother was a very patient lady and tried to teach me when I was young. And like when you're 14, 15, you don't really want to paint stuff, you know, you want to get and do other stuff. Um, but it's something I started about two years ago and um, it just developed into something you really enjoy. Mm. Something you do, it takes your mind off work and it's a form, form of meditation and relaxation for me. Mm. So when you got your beautiful day and you've got music out there and you've got a paint and you've got a, a fresh canvas it's like a like a new life mm. you know what am I going to do today and it's uh, just a very nice not- and you meet other artists and you start looking at other great artworks in the world and you realize how brilliant most of the artists are and how crap your art is you do but because it gives you an understanding how brilliant a lot of the artists who are famous are sure so you actually have an appreciation all of a sudden for something completely new it's like a, it's like a transcendence Mm. you know where where do these ideas come from these techniques how how brilliant are people that can paint something like this or or build a pyramid or you know that's yeah. just that's pure oh, it, is, it is
0: one of those things where it's only once you really kind of start committing to something that you realize how good the best people are
1: yeah and you can see why they're so good yeah. it and does
0: follow this like um Pareto curve where it's like uh, there's a the big clump which heaps and heaps of people who don't produce really anything yep. great but it yep. is like this really small fraction of people who produce most of the unbelievable um kind of widely adored uh works like you see that with music you see yep. that with art um all that type of stuff who's but your
1: favorite artist was a transcendence and just going back to prido yeah go for it prido was a great economist right mm. he talked about um groupings as in the eighty-twenty rule which is the most famous rule yeah. that is 80 percent of Eighty percent of wealth will come from twenty percent of the economy. Sure. Eighty percent of the great art will come from twenty percent of the artists, and it mm. follows right through that eighty percent will vote a certain way for it. So there's amazing rule through society mm. that uh, you know twenty percent of the guys will get eighty percent of the best chicks. That sort of stuff. It's it actually follows right through society it as, is. A, as a real like Fibonacci type pattern. There's patterns to our behaviour, is genetic or environmental. When it's um to sorry for digressing to no 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 favorite I got artist, for it. you can't have a favorite artist. You can have a whole bunch of artists that you love. It's like, what's your favourite lolly? Well, I like Mars bars. I like Snickers. I like, you know, like snakes. I yeah. like, I like everything. They're all good. Just depends mm. what mood you're in. Sure. So the idea of best and optimum doesn't work for me. It's just this whole range of people. Like you can, you can, um, and the thing about great artists is their story behind it, how they paint it. Like you follow Vin- what Vincent, um, Michelle and I went to isle in southern france and where when vincent when he's very ill got committed and started painting amazing paintings in the lovely summer down there and followed him out where he went every day for his famous paintings and saw he painted them and you know you're following this guy this this, this phantom who used to be and then you're looking at his artworks where he's painted it and it looks nothing like it is today but mm. it's still there yeah so you're thinking well what was this guy going through so you start researching who he was and his life with his mental sickness and sure the concepts he had and he virtually only saw one painting his whole life and this guy was painting to cure depression for himself. Yeah, that's how he cured it, and that's why he did such amazing sort of techniques, like wild techniques that no one else was doing, only because he's so mentally ill. Sure, didn't help with drinking like a liter of absinthe every day. That will do it. That will do it. That sort of did it for him, and you know he had moments of mania, and um, but you realise that a lot of artists like that have had, had tremendously difficult lives. Mm. They are very poor. They were they were delving into a place that not many of us, not many of us go. Sure. And that's, when you find even geniuses today in business, you know, they've usually had a very hard time where you push a button where something happens. You've got to go to a really bad place where you find there's something else that turns on. Sure. Whether you're developing something yourself or getting involved in something that's really hard, something happens. And you find that you unlock a new gene code. Mm. You unlock new proteins in your brain. All of a sudden there's new creativity that comes out, but you've got to do it hard. Doesn't mean you're working hard. It just means you're going through a very difficult time where your brain is just going, "I just can't cope with this. What am I going to do?"
0: It's a pretty consistent theme. It is throughout. Uh, Like I mean, I'm pretty sure Nietzsche. His parents uh, died when he was extremely young, or something like that. And so that obviously, for him, just triggered this really kind of dark, but really deep understanding of what drives kind of the human psyche. Yeah. I'm pretty sure John, it might have been John Howard's father died when he was relatively young right. or something like that. I think it may even, like, um, a lot of these people, their death particularly yeah. drives this type of stuff. Like, when you come to grips with your own mortality. And
1: well, great stories in the past, you know, great men, um, great men who have risen up through great adversity, like Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln.
0: Alexander the Great, yeah, his yeah. father died young.
1: Yeah, well, I think Alexander killed his father. Which was, you reckon he did? Of course, he did. Yeah, there was mm. a lot of pressure. Philip was taking other Philip's father was taking other wives and having new children. So Alexander's mother, Olympia, was a pretty harsh lady. I think she might have done him in. So, um, but anyway, again, there's there's a young man who's given the world, and um, he would have had a very harsh life. You know that, that famous story of. Um, there's a great story of when Alexander was young when um, he's obviously a great a man of great talent and his father bought a brand new black stallion that was yes. untamable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Alexander rode it and his father said, We've, I've got to find you another kingdom.
0: He said, well, I think what happened was uh, his father brought this horse and uh, no one could tame it. No one, right. knew, no one knew how to tame it. Yep. Um, and everyone was kind of gathering around and they weren't sure exactly what was wrong with the horse. It was a beautiful horse. Right, uh, It was massive and it was just, for whatever reason, and Alexander figured out that the horse was scared of its own shadow right and he said uh, Alexander this kingdom is far too small for you yeah or something like that that's right and
1: and also there's a there's a great there's a great um, lesson in um, the whole Macedonian campaign which goes through history again and again that is Philip did the hard work of forging a new army with a new with new technologies he did all the work of making this amazing army for his son and was conquering the world. So Alexander took over an amazing machine that took a lifetime to get there. Mm. And all of Alexander's compatriots were pretty much like um, my generation. They took a hiding when you're young, and just think, thank God, that's over, and just get on with it, right? Mm. Then when he was on campaign in Babylon, um, 10 years in campaign, all the next generation of young men were sent to join him. All the next young guys, 17, 18 years old, and um, they got up there. Straight away, Alexander's companions and those guys just gave them all good hiding just because they'd turned up to pull them into line.
0: Mm.
1: And um, they got pissed off with that. And they tried to kill Alexander. Really? And overnight, They tried... They called the, the um, Squire's Revolt. They tried to kill him because they had never been given a hiding because they were spoiled. Mm. Back in Bassadon and Pella, um, they had luxuries. That Alexander was sending back billions and billions. Mm. So these guys were soft. And the parents obviously sent them up to Alexander to... Um, to harden along. up, yeah. yeah. And so straight away, the first bit of lip is just get him over <laughs> and just give it to him. Try and kill him. And they tried to kill him, so he oh. tore them all apart. He tied them down and uh, tied trees to them, bent trees over and tore them all apart. Sent them back bit by bit and said, that's that's how you toughen up your kid. You should have done it for me. <laughs> Killed all of them. Really? Yep.
0: Well, I'm fair. They so did try and stick it to him. They did try bit. to kill him, yeah. yeah, yeah. You <laughs> shouldn't do that to a
1: king in those days. Yeah. It's a good lesson there in the future. That's pretty similar today, isn't it? Mm. This age of entitlement now that uh, all our politicians have these days, not that I want to talk too much about that, but there's a whole bunch of sport children in Canberra. They're all sport. They never take a hiding. As soon as you say something, you say, oh, they're all, oh, mummy, like, they're they're such babies. It is weird, isn't it? They just can't take it. Like, the old days, you just tell somebody to F off. And that was it.
0: Yeah, You used to see, um, like, uh, videos at Question Time, particularly stuff like that, um, where you'd see Howard and Keating or uh, whoever, and they were just... Hurling it at each other. Yeah. With the most awful insults to each other. Yeah. And it was just water off a duck's back. Yeah.
1: They're hard men. They, they were brought up the hard way and they could take it because the issue was to make a better nation. Mm. Not to take it personally and try and win on insults. You know, it was rigorous debate. I, I think they could probably tone it down, but they were the, they were amazing men. Hawke and Keating and, and Costello and, and Howard. Mm. They really forged a nation for us. All that debate. So... And if it's good debate, like Paul Keating was a master, his, his debate was, I think he's the cleverest man we've ever had in Australia. Mm. He could give it to them, really. And he was fighting for the working class. Yeah. And he was you know, a tremendous treasurer and really understood economics. Um, but anyway, those days are gone. Now you've got a whole bunch of petulant children. It's a pity.
0: It is. Should be torn apart. What Bent over trees.
1: Yeah, trees and torn apart and get a new crop in.
0: Should send them up to Macedon. Yeah. Where's that one day?
1: Massed on top of northern Greece, still up there. Still up there, but it's not much. It's a former shadow of itself. Yeah. Anyway, it's all glory of the past. Well, it's funny when you go to Greece; they they, they still were still reliving the past with people were saying, "We used to run the whole Mediterranean. Look at us now." They can't even clean it around the Acropolis. The lazy mongrels.
0: They've got. Um, I'm pretty sure the IMF just um, forwarded a, another massive loan to bail out Greece. That's clever, again. With the
1: Greeks. How clever are they? When you think about it, they don't have to do anything.
0: They don't do anything.
1: They just know that they're just going to be bailed out, and they go up there to the Brussels, and they get towed out for half a day, and all the debts are forgiven.
0: Yeah, they they, honestly—they cover a little bit of a spray. Yeah. And then they're out that night.
1: So you go up to the Westpac, and you borrow two million dollars to buy a house, and you forfeit it. And you go up. What you're going to do is take a yelling for an hour about your bank manager, Mm. your house. What are you going to do? buy a couple of houses. Well, yeah, about 10. <laughs> 10 houses just keep being, being yelled out. But uh, that's, uh, we've got to give it to Germany being so clever. They want Greece and the EU for the simple reason that Greece keeps the value of the euro down. When you have such appalling players, it keeps the value of it down. Yeah, And the last thing Germany wants is a strong euro because can they
0: can't export? can't export. It is an issue. I, um, I, there have been a bunch of studies that have uh, kind of condemning the euro for what it's done to um, to Greece and, and a bunch of those other smaller yeah. exporters. Because of essentially what it's done is that Germany's really benefited. Yep. Um, and everyone else has kind of really suffered. mm mm-hmm. um, That's what you get.
1: The, the EU experiment was set up to stop Europe going to war. It was essentially set up for very, very good reasons. And it was meant for equity that everyone would put in and everyone would share in the wealth of Europe. Because it is an amazingly wealthy place. Mm. But you have, you have races like Germany that are so genetically inclined to discipline and hard work. They're like this tribe of people that Caesar couldn't beat. You know, they're all so... They're like a bunch of well-intentioned, highly-intentioned they ants. They're amazing people. And they just seem to pull together, and they actually have a very good way of working together that not many other people have. Pretty much like China.
0: They are. They're a lot like the Chinese. They have a propensity for hard work. There was um, Thomas Sowell in his book... Um, wealth, poverty, and politics, was talking about wherever the Germans went, in the same way that the Jews, uh, wherever they went, they have a propensity for doing not only the jobs that no one else wants to do, um, but they have a a propensity for doing it extremely well, uh, as well as for manufacturing really fine goods. Like a lot of the the best pianos come from Germany. Yeah. uh, they were also at the cutting edge of uh, like optics in terms of manufacturing, like glasses and lenses and all that stuff. Like all these really fine goods, for whatever reason culturally, the Germans seem to be particularly fine-tuned at it.
1: Well, go to Mercedes-Benz, go to mm. German steel, go to German submarines, go to aircraft. You know, these um, they actually have a intellectual and physical collectivism. They get it, and that's that's the hereditary um, what they've done. For thousands of years. They're able to work together in harmony, mm. which is very unusual. Uh, for some reason they just do it. Whether it's the yeah. water or the air or who they are, they're an amazing tribe of people. But the EU is failing because it has stifled innovation. You cannot produce a sausage, for instance, in Europe that's more than 50 grams, for instance, this shape, this colour, this weight. Everything is everything's now set and rationed for rules. Yeah. So, for instance, you can go into the UK and Germany. You can't set up weekend markets and sell your own produce, otherwise you get shut down. So there's a huge move towards conformity, and um, it's very complex. But they try and ration everything so no one's disadvantaged, no one is advantaged. Mm. So that's actually a huge stifling competition, which will undo which will undo the EU. It has to undo it because the people already are saying, well, I'd like to do something different. And the EU goes, no, you can't. Mm. You can't do that. You go to Malta, for instance, and Malta is part of the EU as a special state. And Malta has been the center of online gaming. And they offer only 5% tax. Really? And it's like, you go to Malta, it's like going into uh, Star Wars and seeing one of those mega cities. You've never seen a more beautiful city in your whole life because tax is so low. Mm. And they've offered massive tax benefits for companies setting up there.
0: Yeah. So that's the way to do it. That's um, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Finland did the same thing. It might have been Finland, or or I know it was one of those Scandinavian countries who were just really struggling. They just said, "We're going to cut your tax all the way down if you come here." They brought everyone, of course, always sets up shop there, um, and the economy starts booming.
1: Well, the EU want to shut that down. Yeah, this is the they want they want them to pay all the taxes, and there's a very a lot of countries in the EU that really pay a lot of tax. Hence why. UK want to get out. The second largest funder of EU. What do they get for it? Yeah. They just get unmitigated migration, which they don't want. London, England is packed already. Already packed. You can't move in London. And they want to put another 400,000 people in there. So anyway. Madness. The EU will fall apart. 20 years, it'll fall apart. Mark my words. I've said it here first. Remember here.
0: (laughs) Carnage House. Exclusive. 16,
1: 16 people Listen to this. I've just called it. What's the date? It's 2018. So 2038, it's all over in Europe.
0: 2038's all over. 20, it's an Al Gore prediction.
1: Probably not as intelligent as Al Gore. And I haven't got his mansion and his helicopters and his jets, but it's still my prediction.
0: That's good. That's good. We'll, we'll record that and that'll be, um, we might even put that on Facebook. Sure. As a separate post. Why not? Chick Olson. All right,
1: well. We're done?
0: Yeah, is there anything else you want to say? One
1: hundred
0: percent. That's it. One hundred percent. Terrific. Done. Okay. Well, uh, as per usual, shout out to our sponsors, My Style Suits. If you want a suit rental, formal interview, absolutely, whatever, eighty to one hundred dollars depending I'm on the suits. Ordering three suits. He's ordering three suits. Um,
1: Tell Dougal to get his finger out and get them sorted out, please. That's
0: Will. Oh, absolutely. Well, he's got to get his finger out over a bunch of things because he's done two podcasts. Both of them were with me, mm. and I've done the other five. So.
1: He's got to get his wrist out as well. <laughs>
0: He's got to pull his neck in. Yep. All right. Uh, thank you for listening. Cheers.